0: I'm Lee Rowland. From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I've spent most of my career practicing law as an ACLU attorney, and now I'm hosting this podcast. At Liberty will explore today's most hotly debated civil rights and civil liberties issues. Every week we'll try and make some sense of what's going on in our country, how we got here, and where we're headed next. I'll be talking with lawyers, experts, and people fighting for their rights and their communities every day. Today, we're talking with Cecile Richards. Cecile became president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America in 2006, right in the middle of George W. Bush's second term in office. She spent 12 years at the center of heated political debates about women's health and abortion rights before stepping down this past April. Before joining Planned Parenthood, Cecile had a long history in campaign politics and labor organizing. Cecile, thank you so much for making time to be with us today. Absolutely. Um, So, as we mentioned, you held the reins of Planned Parenthood for 12 really tumultuous years through some serious changes. From a big-picture standpoint, if you had to look at the state of women's health in America in 2006 and 2018, would you say we're better or worse off than when you started this journey with Planned Parenthood?
1: Well, I think in some places we're better off, in some places uh, worse, and certainly from the point of view of the kinds of restrictions that are being passed uh, and even upheld um, on abortion rights. I do think that those eight years during President Obama and when we were able to pass the Affordable Care Act and really make very dramatic changes for women, uh, expanding Medicaid as well to, you know, so that hundreds of thousands, really millions more people were able to get health care coverage. There were some big, significant changes. I think the one I think about the most that stands out was, of course, the fight over getting birth control coverage, which was... It seems crazy now that that's a controversial topic, but in fact, it was. And that was a big decision uh, that we would actually now cover birth control for all people who have insurance coverage at no copay. And I know the first year alone, women saved about a one point four billion dollars on birth control pills, just to put it in perspective. And of course, we're now at a historic low for teenage pregnancy in the u s. So in some areas, healthcare, um, the the opportunities for people who have it, you know, we're getting better at reproductive healthcare. The problem is, of course, depending on where you live, depending on your income, uh, depending on your zip code, it can really, really affect whether or not you're able to get full uh, and adequate reproductive healthcare.
0: You went immediately to the Affordable Care Act. Does that stand out as a, a highlight, a success story of your tenure in women's health? Well, I'd say it's it's the single biggest
1: healthcare progress we've made, you know, certainly in my lifetime. Now, it's not perfect. And as we know, there are a lot of things that need to be fixed. Unfortunately, though, under this current administration, they're actually trying to basically undo pretty much every single advance we made. In fact, I'm sure folks, uh, many folks have probably followed that they're now actually even uh, talking about getting rid of the requirement that insurance companies not block people from insurance coverage because of pre-existing conditions. This is a huge issue for every family in this country. So, you know, I guess there's never any fight, and the ACLU knows this better than anyone, there's never any fight that's ever over. And there's a lot of work we have to do to protect the advances that were made and build on them. I would say this last year and a half under this administration, which has been so miserable in so many ways, one of the real success stories was the fact that folks rose up all across America and beat back the efforts to defund Planned Parenthood and repeal the Affordable Care Act. Again, I think now the administration is going to piecemeal try to take away all of the progress that's been made, but folks in this country are... um, highly uh, agitated, activated. And I think that was a really important win this last year.
0: You use the phrase defund Planned Parenthood. Um, Usually when people talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, it often comes as a rallying cry at the center of a political debate about abortion. Um, Does Planned Parenthood receive any funding, any government funding for abortion? And can you unpack that phrase, defund Planned Parenthood, what that actually means for your operations? Right.
1: No, and, and it's it's true. It's become this sort of catch-all, and it's actually not really representative of what it means. So first on, the, on defunding, of course, Planned Parenthood isn't in the federal budget. You know, uh, we're not a line item there. So what in fact has been it, Mike Pence, now Vice President Mike Pence, uh, when he was in Congress, started this back in 2010, this effort to basically say... If you participate in a public health care program like Medicaid, you cannot, you basically wanted they wanted to block Planned Parenthood from being able to serve patients in those programs. And we are a big provider of health care to folks with low income, folks on Medicaid. But all of those services which are reimbursed by the government are preventive care. They are birth control, cancer screenings, STI testing and treatment. And for a lot of our patients, women patients in particular. Planned Parenthood, maybe their only doctor visit. As you know, I'm sure, and a lot of your listeners probably do too. Uh, abortion has not been uh, reimbursed by the federal government for m- many, many years unfairly because of the hyde amendment and many women with low incomes have suffered as a result so only in very rare circumstances are abortions actually um paid for it with federal funds so in fact you know one of the great ironies of the quote-unquote defunding fight would be that it would probably result in you know higher rates of unintended pregnancy and higher rates of abortion but that was the big fight um and of course, you know, now we are engaged in something that you'll probably want to talk about as well, which is this effort to now implement a domestic gag order, which would even further limit the ability of people to come to Planned Parenthood and other health care providers for birth control and other preventive care.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that gag order. Um, so it's my understanding that there has been for years an international gag order, right, on provision of abortions. Is that right? Well,
1: it goes back and forth. And again, this is why it's for women, both domestically and globally, it shouldn't matter who's in the White House, whether you have rights or not. But unfortunately, it does. And so under President Obama, there was no, um, he rescinded the international gag order. But then uh, really one of the first acts of this president, if not the first act, was to reinstate the global gag order, which has prevented really, um, hundreds of thousands of women in this uh, all around the globe from getting access to preventive health services. Can you explain what exactly the gag order gags? What are people not allowed to say right. and how is it punished? Well, and it's not only say, it's a you know the u s. global programs will not fund any health care provider that actually either provides access to safe and legal abortion or even informs, patients uh, about their rights. So, of course, this is happening even in countries where abortion is completely legal. Unfortunately, it's also expanded now to not only family planning programs, but HIV prevention programs and more. The gag order that Donald Trump signed was much more expansive than the previous one. It's always been a terrible policy now. And so now, what we've never had this in our country, Ronald Reagan tried to do this, but he left office before he could implement it. And that is a domestic gag order. So, to try to break it down simply, is you go to a program that participates in the family planning program called Title X, serves about 4 million patients every year. And let's say you have an unintended pregnancy. Your doctor or clinician will not be able to tell you one, they can't provide abortion services and participate in this program. But two, they now are gagged from even giving you information about what's legal, where you could seek further treatment if you possibly want to terminate a pregnancy. So it's essentially saying to doctors and clinicians and healthcare providers you can no longer provide the best medical care for your patients. It's outrageous, it's extreme. And not only has Planned Parenthood come out in opposition to it and the ACLU, but certainly medical providers, all the major medical organizations. It is the most intrusive kind of effort that really gets between patients and their medical providers. And uh, so it's really important that we raise the alarm. They are, though, fast-tracking this, taking comments right now. And it's really important that people across the country weigh in about the fact that you need to be able to go to your healthcare provider and get the best possible care without the interference of the federal government.
0: As far as I'm aware, there are only two areas where Congress has attempted to legislate a gag over doctors during care. And the other was in Florida, where the state house passed a ban on doctors asking about gun ownership in the home, for example, to see if guns were secured from toddlers, right? Just as they would ask you about a light switch, right? Do you have unsecured sockets in your home or whatever? Right. And it doesn't seem to be a coincidence to me that the two subjects of those gag orders, right, interfering with doctor's care and telling them to artificially constrain that conversation happened with guns and abortion.
1: I mean it's just highly politicized and 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 I know you know this because it, certainly the ACLU has been involved with planned parenthood in these fights but we have had state after state pass the kinds of legislation that require doctors to basically read statements written by the legislature in some cases most of whom have no idea about women's health, uh, often statements that are completely false that link abortion services uh, with breast cancer, with suicide, with all kinds of things that are medically unproven. And yet there are doctors across the country who have to read these statements to their patients. And so this isn't this domestic gag order isn't the first effort to interfere with what a doctor says to their patient, but it is the most widespread. It would affect the entire National Family Planning Program. And of course, what it would ultimately do is mean that a lot of folks couldn't go to their local healthcare provider anymore for family planning.
0: I've heard many people call the attempt to criminalize abortion something akin to a camel's nose under the tent. That is, it's a proxy for a bigger fight about women's rights and access to reproductive care. Does that resonate with you after your years in the choice field?
1: Well, I think we're certainly seeing, I mean, it used to be back in the olden days, folks would say, well, you know, they really are just, they really just want to outlaw abortion, but that's it. But right now, what we're seeing is not only are This administration and state legislatures across the country trying to ban abortion access, they're now ending the teen pregnancy prevention program, or they're trying to. Of course, we're in court uh, to try to stop that. They are now trying to repeal the birth control benefit that we talked about earlier, which is completely crazy, basically trying to allow your employer to decide whether or not you should be able to get birth control all of these things have to do with giving not only women but young people and everyone the ability to get the information and care they need to control their own body make their own decisions about their pregnancies and their reproductive health care so it's not simply one thing and i think that that we've they've proven themselves in fact by their actions that this is all about controlling the decisions that people make and having the government involved in the most intimate personal decisions about healthcare. And I guess if there's any silver lining to this, and there's very little, it is that support for abortion rights is higher than it's ever been in this country. And I think it's because for the first time, people actually are worried and realize that Roe, which has been the you know law of the land for more than 40 years, is
0: actually at risk. Pew research has shown, I think, for 20 years that the majority of Americans support legal abortion, at least in most cases. Yes. You're now saying that support has gone up. Yes, it has. But that doesn't seem to square with the immense political power that anti-abortion advocates have in this country. Why has that happened?
1: Look, it's not only about abortion. It's about... Guns. It's about civil liberties. I mean, we look at now this. You know, this country is overwhelmingly in support of, of common sense gun reform. The NRA is a you know such a minority, and yet they are completely focused on political power. As is the anti-abortion movement. As I say, you know, if we weren't distracted at Planned Parenthood by actually providing health care to two and a half million people every year, maybe we could be as political as they are. But I do think it's important though to recognize. You know, we had a couple of cases, and I'm sure the ACLU was involved in them, but they ended up being ballot initiatives in two very conservative states. And actually, I write about this in my book, um, because it was, to me, very instructive. South Dakota tried to ban abortion, and the legislature did. And we made the decision to, rather than litigate, to actually bring it to the ballot and let the voters of South Dakota decide. Now, you might think that's a pretty risky proposition, given how conservative South Dakota is. But the fascinating thing was, and there was a big campaign by the Planned Parenthood locally there, going door to door, talking to people in their churches. It was overwhelmingly defeated, this abortion ban, by the voters of South Dakota. And it was because once you actually have a conversation with people and get out of this sort of binary, pro-choice, pro-life, you know, political uh, language— the vast majority of those people in this country can separate out whatever they feel they would do about an unintended pregnancy or an abortion and what they believe the right of the government is. And they feel very strongly, even in very conservative places, that pregnant people have to be able to make their own decisions and that it isn't the right of politicians who have no idea what's going on in this person's life to make those decisions. So I think that even the polling masks the support for... Um, if not the support for abortion, the support for the ability of people to make their own decisions about pregnancy.
0: I've seen some stats that say, if you ask the question with the word woman in it, Mm -hmm. support for legal abortion rights immediately goes up 10 points, something like that. Because
1: otherwise it's just, it's sort of like a theoretical political idea. And uh, again, that's why I think it's important to have these conversations. And once you say to people, actually, we're not trying to put you into some kind of one camp or the other, but we're actually having a very honest conversation about a topic that's very personal. People just are willing to talk, and most everybody has a story of someone in their family or someone they know who's gone through a difficult time um, or decided to terminate a pregnancy or, in some cases, had a desperately wanted pregnancy that didn't go well. Um, So I just think we need to bring more empathy to this conversation.
0: You mentioned South Dakota, and you mentioned putting it up to a direct vote was risky, right? And we're pretty recently off of a victory for abortion rights in Ireland based on a direct democracy action, right? A exactly. general vote to repeal a constitutional ban in Ireland. How do you feel philosophically about putting a woman's right to choose up for a ballot initiative or a referendum?
1: Well, I mean, I don't I guess I don't think about it philosophically. I think that I, <laughs> I I've enough. always said if give me the chance to have a conversation with American voters and we can win every time. But Give me the opportunity to try to talk Congress that's made up of primarily white men, uh, most of whom don't know anything about what it's like to have an unintended pregnancy or worry about a lump in their breast um, that they don't know if they can get a doctor for. And that's a much more difficult conversation because it is highly politicized and it's very difficult to move people um, or even have a conversation. But voters are, are much more sympathetic. And of course, I mean, there's just no way to overstate how proud I was to see women returning home to Ireland to vote, women in their 80s voting um, to finally legalize abortion, young women. I'm um, one of my favorite signs I saw were grandfathers, you know, um, for the uh, repeal, and it just I it gave I think all of us in this country hope to believe that there is a there is a future in which um, we could do the right thing for women
0: again. One of the things that struck me watching it as a woman was that there was some joy in it that I saw women singing together at the airport, you know, the home to vote seemed like a positive and almost wholesome message, I would say. And I think it was delightful and refreshing as an American woman to see that campaign run with something akin to a lack of shame. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I've really seen those conversations play out the same way in America. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a path for us for being able to talk about the right to abortion, not on defense, but on offense without shame and get there in a way that I think I saw happening in Ireland to some degree? I see it happening more and more. I mean, we have a long way to go,
1: but I would say, you know, would you look at what the reproductive justice community has been doing for years, really completely changing The um, talking openly about abortion, sharing folks experience what I see young people that we organize a lot of at Planned Parenthood, whether it's about abortion, whether it's about sexual identity, sexual rights, it's a completely different world. And that is coming because people are storytelling and sharing stories that have been. Yeah, in the shadows behind the curtain for way too long. So I actually think that that culture shift is happening. But as we know, culture is the hardest thing to move. But I feel like at least in the 12 years I was at Planned Parenthood, one, it, it, by bringing more young people into the organization and built, kind of sort of energizing the movement, as I think think we have, that's helped. And then seeing women finally in places of authority and responsibility, who can also lift up the stories that have never been told? So, having you know, Cosmo and Essence and Glamour and all women's magazines talking openly about abortion uh, in some some cases, perhaps for the first time. Having Shonda Rhimes, you know, the most important showrunner in Hollywood, putting abortion stories right in mainstream primetime television. That's a sign that things are changing again. Not immediately, but it's very, very hopeful. And I'm so proud of the people who are really lifting up stories that have never been told before.
0: It's incredible to see the impact of popular culture on our conversations. I I have not personally watched The Handmaid's Tale, but I, I know enough to recognize the outfit. And, you know, I read it when I was younger. And you'll see folks showing up, right, in Handmaid's Tale outfits to hearings on Everywhere. reproductive access. Yes. Uh, do you really think popular culture can help harness and change the conversation we have about women's health and choice?
1: Oh, 100%. And um, yes, and and it's been wonderful to see Margaret Atwood get this entitled. I mean, it's frightening to, to think that how relevant her book is now. But to me, that is, there are three things kind of happening right now with women in particular in this country. We are seeing, one, this big culture shift where women are actually now, um, you know, certainly not, there's not equity, but, but women are now... Uh, influential in popular culture in a way that is enormous. And we could go through the list. I think economically in the workplace, women are now half the workforce in this country. And women are, you know, so we are, all of these questions about whether it's equal pay or paid family leave or just fundamental things that allow women to participate in the workforce, I think are really radically changing conversations. And then politically, we're seeing obviously an explosion of women saying, you know, I'm not going to wait my turn, I'm not going to wait till I get asked to run, I'm just going to run anyway. And historic numbers of women running for office, not only for Congress and for the United States Senate, but up and down. And that, I just think there is a there's something going on right now. And it's and it's all connected. And obviously, the Me Too movement, Time's Up, uh, saying, you know,
0: actually, we have different expectations for ourselves, and for our daughters. You mentioned that sometimes it's hard to have these conversations with a Congress that's overwhelmingly white and male. Not only hard, sometimes it's impossible. Right. you think that changing the number of women in office will change the substantive result of those conversations as well?
1: It does. I mean, absolutely does. I mean, it, it was just hilarious in some ways, even during the fight for the Affordable Care Act, some of the ridiculous conversations that went on one, which I talk about in my book, about whether or not we should cover maternity benefits. And one of the United States senators saying he didn't think we should because he was never going to need them, which was patently <laughs> so ridiculous. And of course, Senator Debbie Stabenow turns right around and said, well, I bet your mother did. And But it's not that women are 100% better or that we even agree with all women. I mean, there are certainly women in Congress that I 100% disagree with, but the conversation is different. And certainly, I mean, in the, in the immediate um, instance, It was two Republican women in in the United States Senate that really stood up against their caucus and were the main reason that we were able to protect not only access to Planned Parenthood, uh, but also the Affordable Care Act. If that hadn't been for Lisa Murkowski and
0: Susan Collins, we wouldn't have won that fight. Would you agree that Planned Parenthood has really become a symbol for both sides in the abortion debate? a symbol in the sense of... As in a kind of political football that right when somebody wants to land a punch on the pro-life side, maybe they'll selectively edit some baby parts videos, right? It seems that Planned Parenthood is the natural focal point for people in talking about abortion.
1: Well, I and, and that's okay. I mean, we provide abortion to a lot of women in this country, a lot of people that otherwise might not even be able to access those services. We also provide a ton of birth control and I think are on the front lines of new advances, better technology, better medicine and birth control um, every single year. And I think, look, we're very recognizable and we're proud of that. You know, Actually, the last poll I saw that we did uh, reported that one in three women report as having been to Planned Parenthood at some point in their lifetime. I've been. Yeah, me too. And so I do think that our opponents think, well, if we could get rid of Planned Parenthood, then we could probably get rid of reproductive health care in America. And uh, so I'm not surprised. But I will also say, whenever they come after us, our support only grows in America. And that's been true the 12 years I was there. Whether it was Congressman Mike Pence coming after us, I mean, even now today, I think his birthday was uh, just recently and people still sending contributions on his birthday to Planned Parenthood, you know, in his name. Uh, that, you know, that attention, I mean, it obviously, I would much rather we could simply all have rights and just go about our business. But I have been so encouraged and, and just really amazed at the outpouring of support for Planned Parenthood every time we come under attack.
0: Does it affect the psychology, I guess you personally, but also the people who work in clinics, the the staff of Planned Parenthood, to feel like they could be a target, right, for someone to come in and engage in undercover video, that they could say one word wrong and end up on, you know, the front page oh, sure. of a news network. How, how does that affect the psychology of being part of upholding choice for women?
1: Well, that's why when people ask me, like, who are my heroes or who's my who are my heroines, it's the staff that come into Planned Parenthood health centers every day. I mean, doctors, medical assistants, clinic escorts. These are the folks who basically, they could do a, a lot of things that would be a lot easier, but they choose to come to Planned Parenthood. They choose to work at Planned Parenthood. No, one, no one's there by accident. And it's interesting. I was in um, Iowa one day before the clinic opened, and I was talking to one of the medical assistants as she was setting up her room. And she said, you know you know, it's been hard, it's been tough, all the, you know, the protesters and, you know, it's, here I am in Iowa and I was thinking about maybe getting a job where there's less stress, but then um, yesterday I held a woman's hand um, during her procedure and she looked at me and as I held her hand I realized she needed me more in that moment than anyone's ever needed me in my lifetime. And how could I, how could I turn away from that? How could I let her down? So um, those are the folks I really admire, but I think it is important to remember those people make an intentional decision to do some of the hardest, most important work in this country.
0: You yourself come from a bit of a political dynasty. I know you talk in your book about how your kitchen table was not used for eating, but for precinct bliss, and your mom was famously governor of Texas. How did that inform How you expected to be treated as a woman in politics, and particularly one, uh, you know, working on an issue that has become a political lightning rod.
1: Well, I mean, you know, Mom used to always say, "Life isn't fair, but government should be," and so that's what we work for. Uh, And I think, look, if you're involved in social justice, you realize you're always sort of pushing a boulder uphill, and half of the times it's going to roll back down on you, and you just got to do it again. But then when you do succeed and when something big happens, it's worth all the years or decades that it took to make that happen. It's funny, and people know my mother, Ann Richards. She was the governor of Texas for a bit. But my dad, you know, was a civil rights lawyer. And, in fact, I just was with him to celebrate his 85th birthday back in Texas. And he's still in the fight, but did a number of cases with the ACLU. Um, In fact, we were talking about one of his favorite cases. with you at the time in Dallas, you had to sign a um, a statement, a um, loyalty oath that you were not part of the Communist Party in order, of, order to teach school. Uh, and this was a, a guy who taught at a junior college and he refused to sign it. And the case actually went to the Supreme Court. And so my dad in particular was always on the side of the underdog. He was always fighting against the uh, establishment, whatever that looked like. And I think we all grew up realizing that we are, were on this earth for a purpose. And if we were lucky enough, we might get to actually work and um, have a job that made a difference in the world. So I guess I never expected to be you know, treated fairly, if you will, but I was always hoped that I would be lucky enough and honored enough to get to do the kind of work that my parents did. So for me, this has been, I've
0: led a very blessed life you have mentioned the power of personal narrative and whatever the politics of it, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. I think there are people who really believe that every abortion is a murder. Do you try and bridge the conversational gap with folks like that? Um,
1: So I probably haven't had a lot of conversations with people who have that particular opinion, but definitely we have a lot of conversations. I mean, we counsel women at Planned Parenthood all the time to make, the best decision for themselves. And that's what we believe, is that no one can tell you what's right for you. Um, that's the whole idea. So just as people have to make all kinds of moral decisions in their lives, we believe that we should trust women to make the one that's best for them. And you know, that's who I have confidence in. And I think also, look, this is about something much bigger than simply this topic. I think that we need to spend more time in this country just listening to people. And a lot of women, they just want to be listened to. They just want someone to actually let them talk, let them express their feelings, and let them come to their own decisions. And again, I think we're really good at that at Planned Parenthood. And I wish we were doing that in this country about a lot more than than simply reproductive rights.
0: And of course, in order to do that we have to be able to have open conversations that include all options, right? And even that is under attack.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. No, and that's what's so frightening about something like a gag order is to think that your doctor couldn't even tell you what's medically possible, what's available, what's legal. A lot of patients come to us, they have no idea. If you read the papers, you would think that abortion isn't even legal anymore in Texas. And so I think this is really an important time to stand up for the right of medical providers to provide the best care for their patients.
0: Correct me if this is wrong, Mm -hmm. but I think we're in a place where seven states now have only one clinic left open. I'm wondering, how did we get to a place where abortion is a right on paper, but the state regulations have constrained clinics' ability to operate so much that there are several states now with just one clinic left open. Can you talk a little bit about what those restrictions actually look like, the practical details, and and why clinics are shuttering in the wake of those? I mean, there's all kinds of different
1: restrictions, everything from the size of the uh, procedure room to waiting periods to whether or not the same doctor has to speak to you 36 hours before a procedure, and then be there the next, you know, the, you know, 36 hours later. And all of these restrictions have been written, not for the purpose of actually improving the health and safety of the patient, but completely to make it impossible for doctors to actually provide abortion services. And Because as you know, I mean, there's very few doctors who can be doing all of these different things and showing up in all these different places. And the tough thing is, there's so many counties in this country that don't have any abortion services at all. So it's not just about the states. It really is a phenomenon that's made it Very, very difficult. So we call them trap laws. You know, they're targeted regulations on abortion providers. And again, even though abortion is one of the safest medical procedures in this country, these restrictions are created to make it really, really difficult for patients and for doctors. On the other hand, I think it's important to recognize and one of the things we work at Planned Parenthood is trying to find new ways to provide information and care to our patients. And I would say... You know, medication abortion, which is a very safe kind of abortion, a non-surgical abortion, is becoming more common. It's becoming more available. So I think we have to constantly look for ways to empower pregnant people to be able to make their own decisions and get the care that they need regardless of where they live.
0: I'd like to shift gears. Um, Tell us how you're feeling about the 2018 midterms.
1: I mean, I'm feeling pretty excited, and certainly not just about Congress, but just I've been around the country and meeting with women. I've been on book tours, so I've been just – these are like tent revivals around the country, just women coming out. Um, Different kind of preacher. It's so great. I mean, they just want to – they're desperately concerned about what's happening, but they're also completely energized. They're not beat down but also they want to be together. So, and it's like, as I say, like, I feel like you just put up the bat signal and women show up, they're ready to go. And I'm meeting women who are running from everything, Congress, state house. Uh, I was actually just at an event the other night, someone said, this woman was running for coroner. I didn't even know you voted for coroners, but in any case, <laughs> so I think women are just at this moment. What are the campaign
0: slogans? Yeah, well, exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's, it's really exciting. And I mean, we saw this early on, of course, with the women's march, which the largest marches in recorded history in the United States. And then, but women didn't quit. That was just the beginning. And then they absolutely were the have been the you know provided the groundswell of pushback on the ACA repeal, on the defending of Planned Parenthood efforts. They're now you know staffing phone banks and running campaigns. I think women are the most important political force in the United States right now. And I just hope we can uh, use this moment to galvanize women, not only around the elections in November, but around finally getting equity in so many areas, including healthcare access. Cecile, what's next for you? I don't know. I mean, I you know, I just left my job after twelve years, and it's hard to leave these jobs. They're big, important, and so meaningful. But I also felt like I needed to kind of you know walk the walk i've I've invested a lot in bringing along new leaders generationally different leaders. And so it seemed like time to make space for them. So right now I'm focused on, I did my book tour. I've been talking to everybody about Make Trouble, and uh, which has been great and great fun and, and interesting and energizing. And now I'm 100% focused on getting every single woman in this country to go vote this November. Because I think if we do, we can change what's happening.
0: In your book, Jacket, I think you describe yourself as someone who bakes pies in your spare time. And I remember thinking that probably means Cecile has maybe baked two or three pies ever in in history. (laughs) No, I've baked (laughs) a lot of pies. Um, How have you made space for joy and fun in your life? Oh,
1: I, look, I think it's, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I do, and I know you talked about the sort of the joy of seeing the women of Ireland. Every day at Planned Parenthood has brought me such satisfaction and not every day has been joyful. We've had a lot of hard days too, but I think it's important to dispel this idea that somehow being involved in social justice or in Planned Parenthood or reproductive rights is somehow like this, you know, burden. Uh, It's the most important work I've ever done in my life. And I have a lot of fun too. I have amazing family. We take wild and crazy adventurous trips. In fact, I'm just busy trying to plan our next one. And, uh, I do bake. I love to bake pies. I love to I love to cook with my family. Uh, we are constantly texting each other a recipe for whatever next thing we found. And so, no, my life is. I'm a very lucky person.
0: If you had to give just a quick bit of advice or booing of spirit yeah. to, to women who yeah. maybe got energized during the Women's March and are wondering how they retain they that power next. and what they do next, what would you say to them? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think the most important thing is, you know, don't wait to be asked. Don't wait for instructions. Just, you know, and as uh, I think our theme is now start before you're ready. And <laughs> so whether it's running for office, volunteering, I'm saying right now, anybody who thinks they have some extra time and want to meet some cool people and get some new skills, go volunteer on a campaign. So there's record number of women running for office, but they need our help. And, Part that means making contributions to folks if they, if someone's running for office and you think they're they're great, but also go volunteer for a phone bank. Go go say okay, I'll volunteer on Saturdays and uh, and make phone calls or I'll um, knock doors. You'll meet the most amazing people and you might even just get somebody elected. And there's nothing quite as satisfying as that happening. Uh, and I, again, I think a lot of the a lot of the new candidates that are running now, you know. A lot of them aren't going to win because there's so many running, but that's okay. They're going to be even better next time. And maybe next time, it could be you.
0: Cecile, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to At Liberty anywhere you get your podcasts.